Amen. You may be seated and turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12 as we continue our, our work through this brief gospel. We are in the last week of Jesus' life before he is crucified and resurrected. And we have much ground to cover between now and Thanksgiving, but I think we've got it mapped out and it will be a glorious trek through some astonishing, astonishing truths of true history. So we're in Mark chapter 12, we'll be in verses 1 through 12 this morning, and that is known in your Bibles probably as the parable of the tenants or the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, This morning's text is introduced to us by Mark as a parable, The, the first words out of the gate say, and he began to speak to them in parables. Well, as you turn there, let me set the scene for you and let me explain to you what Jesus does with his parables. Parables of Jesus are not merely illustrations or analogies of just general broad principles. The the parables of Jesus, if you look at all of them, and I believe there's 40 in our three gospels or four gospels, the parables of Jesus function to jolt people into seeing things in a new way and to bring them to a point of crisis or a point of decision. To give you a context of where Jesus is in this week uh, that we know as the Passion Week, we have just seen on Sunday of this week, he rode into town on a donkey's colt. It's the triumphal entry where he enters into the city of Jerusalem as a king like none other. We also saw that the, at the end of that day when he rode into town, he is in the temple in the evening and he surveys the landscape and then he and his disciples go across the Kidron Valley into a nearby community. He does not stay and reside in the house of God. On Monday, he's coming back into Jerusalem, and he walks by a fig tree, and he curses it, and that fig tree withers to the roots. And we also see that he goes into the temple, and he clears the temple of all the money changers and all the animal salesmen that were there to make profits for the sacrifice, the the Passover that was coming later in the week. On Tuesday, Jesus is confronted by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership. And they ask him, by what authority do you do these things? And I believe those things referred to the clearing of the temple. By what authority? They questioned his authority, and Jesus responded to them with a question that they were unwilling to answer, and therefore he was unwilling to answer their question because his hour had not yet come. Well, now we find ourselves in Wednesday. This, this passage, Mark chapter 12, most of 12 and into 13, happens on the Wednesday of the Passion Week. And here we see that Jesus is confronted by the Sanhedrin again, and there are multiple crowds of people around him, and he begins to speak to them in a parable that is designed to confront them where they are and to jolt them into a response of faithfulness, one would hope. So picking up now in verse 12, verse 1 of chapter 12, let's read on. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
and they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Father, we've got servants, we've got a vineyard, we've got a a landowner, we've got a beloved son. And we've got responses to all of this. Would you teach us what in the world this would have to do with us today and what this has to do in the history of redemption that you have brought through Jesus Christ, your beloved son. We pray this desperately in Christ's name. I'll give you a roadmap for where we're going this morning. I've got five things that we need to look at. First, we're going to look at the hope of God because there is a vineyard planted with much promise behind the planting of this garden. We're going to then look next at the kindness of God. And from there, we're going to trek through the sacrifice of God. And ultimately, we're going to see the severity of God. And then tragically, at the end, we're going to see the loss. Of God. So walk with me through those five points this morning as we unpack God's word to us in the Gospel of Mark. We see that there is a man who has planted a vineyard in verse 1. He put a fence around it, he dug a pit for the wine press, he built a tower, and he leased it to tenants, and he went into another country. We need to divine many variables in that verse. And let me just walk you through some definitions and give you some context for who all these characters are. First of all, I would ask you, who is the man and who is the vineyard in this passage? Well, we are to understand that the man is a, in the parable is a reference to God the Father. And the vineyard is a direct reference to God's people, Israel. I'll give you some scriptural support for that. Jesus' parable is tracking exactly with Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 through 7. And in verse 7 of Isaiah 5, we read this. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. So in this parable, the man who plants the vineyard is God, and the vineyard that is planted is a people, a nation, Israel. I would take you to Genesis chapter 12 and show you the actual moment when God planted this vineyard called Israel in Genesis chapter 12, 1 and 2. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. A few verses later, Abram finds himself in Shechem at the oak of Morah, And it's there that God says, right here, this land, I will give to you and your offspring. And we read on that Abram built an altar right there because that's when God established the promise of a great, abundant, fruitful vineyard. So in this parable, we've got God the Father planting a vineyard called Israel. Second, this man who is God builds a fence around his vineyard. I want to be careful here. When we get to the parables, we need to be cautious that we don't take everything and allegorize it to something in Scripture. But I do think that I can be faithful to the Scriptures this morning and show you what this fence is. For you see, God puts a fence around his people. In the Old Testament, that fence was known as the law of God. And so we look at Psalm 139, verse 5. You hem me in from behind and before. We love that verse, don't we? God is a protective God who hems us in with his strong hands. We also see in Galatians chapter 3, verse 24, Paul writes, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So even in the New Testament, the law is shown as a guardian, as a fence that God puts around his vineyard, Israel, that he has planted because he wants to protect Israel, his people. We then go to a tower that is established in this garden. What is a tower? Well, ladies, you're studying the names of God with Jennifer on Wednesday nights this summer, and the name of the Lord is a strong tower, we're told in Proverbs chapter 18. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. So, God builds a tower in the vineyard that is Israel, and the tower is his name, so God puts his name 
on Israel. And it's in that name that the Israelites are safe and secure. Psalm 21, may the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. The name of God is powerful. It is protective. And God put his name on Israel. That is the tower. What about the pit and the wine press? Well, Israel was planted by God with the purpose of bearing fruit. God didn't just create a people and stick them out there like we do with Legos and play with them a little bit. No, there was a purpose behind these people. It was to bear fruit. It was to take the message of God to the nations, to the ends of the earth, even in the Old Testament. Isaiah 5, 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? So God's intention for planting the vineyard of Israel was that it would produce fruit, fruit that proclaimed the glory of God to the nations. And so he builds a pit and a wine press for the proceeds from these vines in the vineyard to be production-oriented so that they may share the glory of God throughout the world. Lastly, we have, just in this one verse, we have the variable of the tenants. Who are the tenants that the man that God leased the vineyard to? Well, the tenants are none other than the leaders of the nation of Israel over the generations. We started with kings and priests, and ultimately we get to this point in the Scriptures in the New Testament where we have an establishment called the Sanhedrin, which was made up of Pharisees and scribes and chief priests and the elders of Israel. There's about 70 of these men. The leaders of Israel were established tragically. 1 Samuel 8, starting in verse 5. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And so then God allowed them to elect Saul, and ultimately God worked it to David, but God here is beginning to lease his nation Israel over to kings to lead the nation on his behalf. And that's how you get all these variables in verse 1 brought together. So we have God, he planted Israel, and he put his name within it to protect his people. He put his law around her to protect her. He leased her out to some tenants who he entrusted to lead these people on his behalf. That's what we have in verse 1. So there is the hope of God as God plants his vineyard. Number 2, we see the kindness of God. The kindness of God in his persistent pursuit his people. Verse 2, when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And Mark then walks us through a sequence of three servants that are itemized individually, and then he has a catch-all where there were many other servants that were sent to the garden, to the vineyard. So the servants in this passage, we need to understand those rightly as prophets. When you look in the Old Testament, the title servant, oftentimes you'll find in the same sentence, servants and prophets. And so this is code language in Mark's or Jesus' parable about prophets that God sent to his vineyard, that he sent to the tenants of his vineyard. And so we walk through three. I I could spend a lot of time on these, but I'm going to shorten down, just give you some summary information here. The first servant, it says they took him and they beat him and they sent him away empty-handed. If you evaluate, and I cannot name these servants to actual prophets in the Old Testament, but I can sure show you where some resemblance of 
these tenants, these servants rather, are in some of the prophets. This one sounds a lot like uh, Elijah with Ahab and Jezebel. Just after Elijah uh, defeats the prophets of Baal at the, at the altar, the fiery altar, he then puts those prophets to death and Ahab and Jezebel threaten the life of Elijah. And Elijah is treated disrespectfully, and he flees off into the wilderness where God meets with him and provides for him out there. So there's a prophet, there's a servant that God sent to the vineyard, to the tenants of the nation of Israel who was not received well. We go to the second servant. It says they struck that one on the head and treated him shamefully. One of my favorite prophets in all of the Old Testament, you, you may not have even heard of him, is Micaiah. Micaiah, he's found in 1 Kings chapter 22. I'd love for you to read that this afternoon. Micaiah is probably my favorite prophet. You'd say, well, what about Isaiah and Jeremiah? Yes, they're great, and they gave us a lot to read, but Micaiah is such a great story of a man taking a stand. The story goes like this. Ahab is d- determining whether or not he should go into war against Syria. They've been at odds with one another for three years. And Ahab assembles 400 prophets, and he asks them, Seek the Lord, and you tell me, should we go after Syria? And all 400 prophets say, Yes, go into battle, and you will have victory. The text tells us that King Jehoshaphat, who is of Judah, the king of Judah, and Israel is split at this time, says, Might there be another prophet that you can inquire of? And, and Ahab says in one of the classic tragic lines of scripture yeah there is another one but I hate him because he always always prophesies against me Jehoshaphat says yeah bring that guy here let's hear from him and so the servant that goes to get Micaiah goes to him and says hey buddy listen 400 prophets have said to the king go into battle so you stay the course That's your message, right? Micaiah says, I will only speak before Ahab what God tells me to speak. And he comes before Ahab. And as the story goes, he says, yeah, Ahab, go into battle. You're going to win. Do it. It's going to be good. Rah, rah. And Ahab smells disingenuous prophecy. And he says, I need you to tell me the truth. And he said, you're done. (laughs) You go into battle against Syria, it's over for you. And Ahab, the text says, turns to Jehoshaphat and said, See what I mean? He always, he always goes against what I want to do. And so they treat him shamefully. The text says they slap him upside the head. They throw him into prison with meager rations, the text says. And Ahab says to Micaiah, I'll see you when I come back. And Micaiah says, If you come back, then I did not speak of the Lord. He didn't come back. He was treated shamefully. He was sent by God to Ahab to turn the course of Israel, and Ahab would have none of the message or the messenger. We get to a third one. The third one is is cited like this, him they killed. So we have a murder now of one of the servants, one of the prophets that's sent by God to Israel. Matthew gives us a little bit more insight. Matthew says they stoned him, so he was killed by stoning. That to me sounds just like Zechariah in Second Chronicles 24, 21. And it goes on and on and on, the text says. There were many others, some they beat, some they killed. And I would take you to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two, which very likely is a reference to Isaiah, by the way. They were sawn in two and they were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These are the many others that God sent to the nation of Israel. God was kind. God was persistent. God was patient. God went after his people over and over and over again. 
I'm no prophet, but I want you to know that God does that every Sunday morning when we meet in this room with this book open on this platform. This is God over and over again pursuing us with a message of correction, maybe, of encouragement, certainly. But over and over again, through those same prophets, he comes to us regularly. What a kind, what a kind God we worship. I want you to just note how patient and persistent he is. Jeremiah, one of these prophets, wrote this, Jeremiah 7, 25. From the day of your fathers, he's quoting God, from the day of your fathers came out of the land of Egypt to this day, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. Yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. So God himself says, Day after day, I persistently sent my servants to my vineyard. And each time, they were not received. And those that were in charge in that era did worse than their fathers who preceded them. Love Martin Luther's quote on this. Martin Luther said, If I were God and the world had treated me as it treated him, I would kick the wretched thing to pieces. <laughs> I think we would all look at this and go, yes, it's wretched. Kick it to pieces, God. But our God does not operate like that. He makes a promise to Abraham to plant a people and that a people might be fruitful to the Gentiles and to all the nations. Our God will make sure that it happens. He doesn't discard and draw again. He redeems. We'll see that in a moment. So the fact that God sent one prophet to Israel after Israel disobeyed him is amazing but our God sent many and many and many but God wasn't done they abused shamed killed beat imprisoned many and God was not done but God did ramp up the intensity God sent one like none other And that's where we go next in verse 6. And here we will see the third point, the sacrifice of God and his ultimate act of love. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But we see that the tenants do not respect this son. They said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. We've got another variable here that we need to define. There is a beloved son. The owner is God. We've already established that. He sent servants which were prophets. But now he's got one more. It's a beloved son. And so we have here Jesus in a parable referencing himself to the Sanhedrin, to the leaders of Israel in the moment. This beloved son language that Mark uses echoes right back to the first chapter of Mark. When Jesus is baptized, he comes out of the water and he looks up and the scriptures say he sees the heavens torn apart and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And then there's a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That's this beloved son. This vineyard planter sends his beloved son. God sends Jesus Christ to his vineyard, to his people, to Israel. And you know how he's treated. This word beloved son, if you took it literally from the Greek, it would be one-of-a-kind son, one and only son. This is a unique son. This is, by the way, God's best that he could send. The prophets were not best. They were good. But this is God's best. So he makes a tremendous sacrifice. And I want to just ask you this morning, what kind of God would send his ultimate and best to such wretched people as these? 
And I would answer that for you and say, an infinitely loving God would do this. And that is who we have gathered this morning to worship. The infinitely loving and holy God, even in his wrath, he is loving, as we will see in a moment. So how do the tenants treat this son, this beloved son, this one-of-a-kind son that the vineyard owner sends? Well, I say that they presumed that the owner, the man that sent the son, was dead. That's what I think, because the text says right here, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. Well, that means the man that sent the son's got to be dead because this is the heir. So I want you to understand that at this point, in the Sanhedrin's minds, whether they understand it or not, God is dead to them. They are so far away from what God intended for them to do as the tenants of the vineyard of Israel that God is no longer even a concept to them. He is gone and dead and out of the way. And if we deal with this last one that comes, we can set up shop in Israel and do with her whatever we wish. We can be God. So they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. Hebrews 13, 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gates. It's symbolic. His people threw the beloved son out of the vineyard. It says they didn't even bury him. They just threw him out. There's two points of application I'd like to make right here. What does this have to do for us today? So far, it's been a true historical sermon. This stuff really happened. It's recorded in the perfect word of God without error. So so far, we've had a history lesson. What does this have to do with us? What are we to do in response to encountering such a wretched passage of Scripture? I don't want to say that. Wretched accounts in the blessed passage of Scripture. Well, I think there's two points of application that we need to get. Here's the first one. We still have the voices of the prophets coming to us, warning us, encouraging us, confronting us, right where we stand and sit in 2016. We have the Bible. This is God's messenger to us, and his messenger's messages are embedded in this. God wrote us a book, and he did it through the the pens, the styluses of men on parchment papers, and it's been preserved for thousands of years. Have you ever come to this ancient book and been confronted by the contents in it through the prophets or the apostles? I have this last week. What do you do when you're confronted by the servants of God who speak on behalf of God? In such a moment, do you stiffen your neck? Do you say, I don't think so, Jeremiah? No way, John? Uh Uh-uh, Paul. No, don't say that to me, Paul. Is that your attitude when you take up the Scriptures? To do that is to act just like these tenants. It is to stone them and to abuse them and to mistreat them and to shame them. And it's all to your detriment. It was not good for the leaders of Israel to shame and mock and flog and imprison and kill God's servants. It did not work out for them. You and I, we cannot read God's word and say, I don't like what that says, no thanks, go away. Or, I'll show you and throw the book away. We have to take the message of God through his servants and embrace it, no matter where it confronts us. We need the confrontation. There's a second application, and it comes to guys like me and the elders that lead this church. We are not like the Sanhedrin. We are sheep first, and then we're shepherds. I like to say that 95% of the time, we're sheep. And 5% of the time, God's appointed us to be under shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. 
And in that 5% of the time, we have to check how we function, how we act in God's little vineyard here. Far too many men have disqualified themselves in ministry. And they have looked at the confrontation of the scriptures. They look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, where they do not fulfill those qualifications, and they say, nah, doesn't apply to me. This is my ministry, and I will retain this because this is how I make my living. I built this place. That's what these tenants did. And I would say to the other five men that lead in this church with me, this is not our vineyard. You hear me? (laughs) This is not ours. This has been leased to us in the brief little time that we are shepherds here because we're still very sheep-like, are we not? So we need to understand that we must lead on behalf of the vineyard planter. Too many men have disqualified themselves from ministry biblically, but they hang on to their ministry as if the church of God's was their own. This is not Edward Hines's church. It's not. I'm here for a season. I'm a tenant. And I'm to do well with my stewardship for the season that God has me, and that goes for the rest of my brothers that lead with me. In spiritual leadership, some men have disqualified themselves and retained their position, and they are no different than the violent leaders that led Israel in this text that we're talking about. They, by defying God's word, are in essence stoning the prophets and crucifying Jesus all over again. May that never be said of one pastor at Rocky Point Baptist Church. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 is a very pertinent passage for this. The writer says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. There's a passage that says, crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. That's what the tenants in the parable did. That is tragically what happens sometimes with pastors and churches in modern day. We've got to guard against this. We need warnings, elders. We need warnings like this on occasion. And the text has brought it to us this morning. In sending his son, there was nothing more that God could do. Do you understand this is the ultimate act? Jesus was God's ultimate demonstration of patient love. Jesus, the son of God, was God's final word. And if Christ is rejected, we need to understand that nothing remains for us. If these people... Reject Christ. There is not another provision that God's going to bring to them. We'll see that. And that is true for us as well. If we reject the message of the prophets, if we reject the life and the work of the beloved Son, there is not a third thing that God is going to offer us. Because Christ is His best and His ultimate and His final word. Some people have been killing Christ over and over again all the days of their life by denying him and rejecting him. If this is you, I urge you this morning to see this parable as one that applies to you and to stop rejecting Jesus Christ. Stop. It will not work out for you and you're robbing God of glory in the process. There is a day coming when it will be too late and you will have nothing left to experience but the wrath of God. Receive His beloved Son, His best for you. It's a free offering to you this morning. He's there for you to have. 
if you would embrace him. Well, let's look at the severity of God in verse 9. Jesus turns and asks a question. He says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? And then, uncharacteristic for Jesus, in Mark's version, he answers his own question. He says, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. I want you to note that God does not destroy the vineyard. He destroys the tenants. He destroys the leaders of Israel. He does not destroy Israel. He made a promise to Abram. He is a faithful God to all of his promises. So he destroys the tenants of the vineyard. They have burdened the people with their own laws and fences. God set a law up. God had a tower, put his name on this. But here come the Pharisees, and they added so many laws to the laws. They moved the fences that God established around his people. And this distracted the people and led them away to where they became wild grapes. Isaiah 5, 7, 5, 3. Wild grapes. They have mistreated the prophets. They have killed the beloved son. Matthew, in his version of this parable, he tells us the crowd's response. Jesus says, what should the owner of the vineyard do? Matthew says the crowds respond, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. They sound like Martin Luther. (laughs) Wretches, same word. Luke tells us in his account of this parable that after the people respond or after Jesus says he will destroy the tenants, the the tenants, the Sanhedrin that's there before Jesus respond, surely not. That's not true. He will not destroy us and give this over to others. So in a moment, we've got friction. And in a moment, we've got these tenants, these Sanhedrin members understanding He's talking about us, and they don't like it. Surely not, they say. Well, history tells us that the judgment of God came against the Jewish leadership. This is in uh, either A.D. 30 or A.D. 33, depends on what calendar you want to go by. But in A.D. 70, so almost 40 years later, Titus in a Roman army comes into Jerusalem and sacks the city, and tears asunder the temple. And so, so complete was that destruction and that defeat that to this day, you cannot find a Pharisee, although there are figurative Pharisees to this day, you cannot find a Pharisee, you cannot find tribal records of Israel. No one today can trace their lineage to see if they were from the tribe of Benjamin, Naphtali, any of that, it's all gone. There's no chief high priest. There's no Sanhedrin. All of that leadership that God established by leasing the vineyard of Israel to those people, all of that leadership in 2016 cannot be found. And yet they're still waiting for the Messiah of the Old Testament. It was gone. And God gave the leadership of his people over to others. Who are the others? I think the others are the apostles. We could look at a lot of passages. We don't have time this morning, but it is true that the leadership of the church was given to the apostles. These lowly, hand-picked, uneducated fishermen, tax collectors, dirty people, God handed the leadership of his church, his people, over to them. These leaders wrote the New Testament scriptures that we have. These leaders were also martyred just like the prophets and just like the Christ that they represent. They were martyred, every last one of them, to the death. John died of old age in isolation on an island. 
of the leaders that were to assume the leading role in God's vineyard were the apostles, and that's where we get the New Testament scriptures. Jesus quotes in verse 10 a well-known messianic psalm. It's likely a psalm that the people were singing the week of the Passover. This whole week these people have probably been singing Psalm 118. But here's what it says in Mark chapter 12 verse 10. Jesus says, Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. It's a direct quote from Psalm 118. In the building of the temple, there was a stone that was rejected by the builders. And this rejected stone at one point becomes the most important stone. It becomes the cornerstone in the sanctuary of the temple. Jesus is saying this to the Sanhedrin probably right there where that cornerstone was. Jesus Christ is the keystone in the spiritual temple of God. And he went from rejection by man to being the ultimate and highest place of honor, the right hand of God. I want you to look at verse 11. We do not need to read over this quickly. <laughs> verse 11 says, this was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let's don't read over that too quickly and miss it. The rejection of the stone, Jesus Christ, was not only foreseen by God, it was intended by God. This was the Lord's doing that His Son would be rejected, that His Son would be thrown out of the vineyard, crucified outside of the city of Jerusalem. It was the Lord's doing because it is that way in which the Lord would bring salvation to sinful people, forgiveness for the sins. There's a great verse that packages all of this. Paul writes it in Ephesians 2, 19-22. Here's what he says. This, this sums this cornerstone and these apostles that the church has given. It just sums it so nicely, and I just have to read it this morning. Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There is a cornerstone, his name is Jesus Christ. There are many other stones in the structure. They are the prophets and the apostles. And we might be a little bit smaller, but we are stones too in this building of a spiritual temple that is also God's vineyard. We're going to take the Lord's Supper in a moment. There's a reason why we do this together in this room. We don't do this in the privacy of our own home. We do this together. This is a family meal. We don't go off into the corner by ourselves either. We come to the table together because we are imitating this temple where we are stones being placed in it with the apostles and the prophets and our chief cornerstone is none other than Jesus Christ. That's what's happening even as we listen to preaching and certainly as we take of the Lord's Supper and remember what he did for us. So God uses the rejection of Christ for a greater purpose, to build us up into his body, the household of God. And we must conclude with what David said in Psalm 118, and Mark here quotes Jesus as saying, we must look at it, and it must be marvelous in our eyes. We must marvel that God was patient, with many prophets, that God sent His best, Jesus Christ, knowing that He would be rejected. And it was through that rejection that we're made right with God. We must marvel at that. Every day we draw breath. Let's finish with the loss 
of God. Let's look at the response of the Sanhedrin and the prophecy that Jesus offers in this parable actually being fulfilled. Verse 12, And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Just look fully at the response of this Sanhedrin now. (laughs) This is so ironic. They knew that Jesus was talking about them directly. So his parable jolted them into a startling realization of reality of what he's saying. They know he's talking about him. And in this knowledge, they begin begin to fulfill what he said about them in the parable. Because they want to put him to death. They were seeking to arrest him, and we know that the arrest would lead to crucifixion. So right here on Wednesday of this week, they begin to fulfill their role in the prophecy that Jesus' parable is about. They are about to ultimately reject the stone. This will be in the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus Christ. And the rejected stone is about to become the cornerstone, which happens on the resurrection day. And it seems like God's vineyard was going to be stolen and destroyed. But we know now that God did this, and by His sovereignty, He takes His vineyard away from unfaithful tenants and hands it over to those who will steward it well for Him. So how do you respond to this message this morning? We've had a good lesson of history, and I hope we've had a good moment of application. There is great danger in standing in opposition to God's beloved Son. It's perilous. It's doom and gloom. There is no good outcome to take a stance against Jesus Christ. People reject Jesus today not because they don't know who he is. There are some unreached people groups, and we're working on those. But I will tell you that in the United States of America, there are people that know full well who Jesus Christ is, and they don't receive him because he is a threat to their throne and the throne that they sit on in their lives. And so they stiff-arm him at least, and they blaspheme him at worst. If you claim to be a Christian and are resisting the words of God's prophets and His beloved Son, you are without Christ today, and you're living in a state of unbelief. And you are in a dangerous position, and you may not even realize it. May God bring a realization to you this morning as a result of this message that you're standing on the wrong side of Christ and His work for you. If you have embraced Jesus Christ, I want to take you back to that Hebrews chapter (coughs) 6 passage. Be careful that you don't fall away and crucify him all over again by denying his counsel and his correction and his encouragement. And so this morning, we're going to gather around a table. This table was established by Jesus Christ in the upper room the day after the context that we're in in Mark chapter 12, in the Last Supper with his disciples. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me so that you do not fall away and you continue to grow in your embracing of me and the truth of me and what I did in your place. And so we come to this table, believers, this morning as as an act of worship, an act of remembrance, and as a protective measure that we not slip away from the faith that we have proclaimed and thereby crucify Jesus all over again to our own detriment. So this morning, we're going to come forward and we're going to take of the Lord's Supper and we're going to remember His body being broken and His blood being shed for us. This table is here for believers in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 11 says that If you come in an unbelieving heart, if you come in an unrepentant heart, you will be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. So this is a table for the household of God to come to. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you're living faithfully in obedience to Him, 
you're welcome to come to this table. You do not have to be a member of our church. You have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And we would ask that you'd be a member of a church that believes in Jesus Christ and be in good standing in that church. If you're not a believer, I, I encourage you to watch and observe God's people remember what Jesus Christ did in dying on a cross in their place. And one day it would be my prayer that you would join us at this table. But until you believe and obey Jesus Christ, I would urge you not to come and eat and drink judgment on yourself. We have children in the room. Our children are curious about what to do with this bread and this juice. Let's be careful with them. They are, it's great for them to participate with us and watch us, but until they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I would urge you to teach them that you're not ready yet to remember something that you have not yet believed. And in that way, we can teach them and disciple them as we take the supper. So let's be cautious and be good shepherds of even our children here this morning. With that, I'm going to ask the men to come forward. I'm going to pray for us. And we're going to worship through the taking of the elements. Father, we thank you for what we are now about to embark upon. The, the memory of Jesus Christ rejected, rejected by your tenants. But he's rejected according to your plan so that we might be accepted by you. So that we might be placed upon this cornerstone, Jesus Christ, and so that we together might be building up the body of Christ so that we can produce fruit, and that fruit is a witness to the world that Jesus Christ rules and reigns forever. Jesus, we thank you so much for sacrificing your body. Help us, Jesus, to worship you and to remember what you did in our place as we break this bread. And dear Christ, we thank you for spilling your blood. It took blood to purify the sins of man. And you gave yours. We praise you this morning as a people for shedding your blood for us. Help us to remember and to worship you for this extreme sacrifice that you made for us. Spirit, would you unify us as a congregation? Would you help us to worship you, God, well, as a family? We pray all this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.